Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we exalt you for your goodness, Father. You are good. And we thank you that you delight to do us good with all your heart and all your soul. Scripture tells us that, and you show us that through your Son. We thank you for your Son. Thank you that you change us and make us new creations so that your goodness flows through it, so you, we can be conduits of your grace. Lord, teach us more about you and our love for you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful time of worship we have had. Help us to continue in that worship as we consider your word this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. Morning, Bethel Church. Good to have you here. It's March 14, 314. If you're a math person, happy Pi Day. 3.1415926. You'll get that if you know math. Uh, welcome to those who are online. My name is Craig Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And we'll be looking at 1 John 2, 15 through 17 this morning in our series, Eternally Focused Life. And we'll be considering this passage and, and thinking about our, our love for God and God's goodness to us. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Let me read those three verses for us. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I was thinking through this passage over the last couple of weeks, I was looking at it, and I often try to notice what, what sticks out in a passage, because that really helps me to understand, helps us to understand what's important there. And as I st stood, stood back, stepped back and reflected on it, see this word love and desire reoccurring eight times in total, four times John either says or implies the word love in the first verse, and then in the next two verses, he talks about desires or pride four times as well. So in three verses, eight times, he's, he's emphasizing our affections for God. Now, he's not talking about emotions. Emotions are the weaker variety of our affections, but he's talking about our beliefs and our concerns. When we believe something deeply and we're concerned about it greatly, it affects us. And we respond to that in love and joy and desire in different ways. <clears throat> and that really dovetails right with our first part of our mission statement here at Bethel Church. Love God passionately. Not love God weekly or love God occasionally, but love God passionately. And John is getting at that with a negative example. He's saying, don't love the world. But he could as easily be saying, love God. But he wants to point out how the world draws us away from our love for God. This is the first time John gives a command in this letter, very first command. And it's very easy to just take this in a straightforward way and say, okay, I'm not going to love the world. But how do we do that? What does that mean? And why and how do we obey? What's our motivation in obeying God and following God? And why does he keep repeating this emphasis on love and desire? Now, this is something that I struggled with in my younger years, high school, college, and afterwards, just thinking, what am I loving? And what's motivating me in my life? 
I was born and, and raised in a, a Christian home. My parents were, parents were involved in church, and I trusted Jesus at a very young age. I was the youngest of four boys, and obviously, if you know me, I was their favorite. All of us younger children are the favorites of our parents, right? And uh, that kind of was a problem for me at times because I would want to be the good child. I look at my older brothers and see some of the things they did wrong, and I think, well, I can get my parents' approval if, if I just live rightly and if I do the right thing all the time. And I, I began to see in my life that I was just doing things out of duty. And that was, that was an empty motivation for me. I was trying to impress. I was a people pleaser. Uh, the one thing that I was seeking, even though I was a believer, I was seeking approval from other people. And that was a weak, a legalistic, and really an unspiritual motivation for me trying to be good on my own effort. I was really trying to earn my own righteousness because I thought what I was trying to earn was people's approval, and that was the most important thing in my life at that time. So I'd ask myself, what, what was I loving? Well, I'm loving myself. I'm loving my own goodness. I'm loving people, and I'm really fearing people because I want to please them, and when I don't please them, I'm afraid of what will happen and what the response will be. If you think of the story of the prodigal son or the two sons, I was really the typical older brother. I, I stayed home, I worked hard because I wanted the feast for myself. I didn't think the other brother deserved the feast when he disobeyed God. I should have gotten the feast because I obeyed my father. I wasn't loving God and I wasn't desiring God and God really did a work in my heart in that time period to, to show me where my desires were and that I could be loving him and he was my greatest joy. And, and I say that because we all, every single one of us, believer or not, Christian or not, we all have a motivation issue. It's the problem that every human being has had since Adam and Eve, is to create our own means of salvation. Turn over to 1 John 5 and look at the very last verse in the, in the book of 1 John, in the letter of 1 John. John kind of surprises us with 1 John 5.21. When he says here to the people who are reading it, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's the very last thing he says in this letter. He hasn't mentioned idols anywhere else in this letter. But in the very last phrase, the very last sentence he has, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, he's not talking about little statues that you put on uh, your mantle above your fireplace. He's not talking about actual statues that you worship. He's talking about idols in your heart. And he's really referring back to this passage and other passages in 1 John because he's talking about our, our love and our idols. One person has said that our, height, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And that's really central to my understanding of sin. Sin is idolatry. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, idolatry is at the root of all sin and it's really the way to understand sin. And when we repent, we need to repent not just of our thoughts and our words and our actions, although we should repent of those. When we're impatient, we should repent of that. When we're angry, we should repent of that. But it's also looking for the sin beneath our sin. Repentance is seeking out and discovering the heart idols that we have, discovering the inner motivation for our sins and why we do what we do. And the words idol or idolatry, we don't use those, but they're really a solid description of what sin is. Idolatry is trusting that something or someone else 
will make me happy and is therefore more important to me than God and Christ. Idolatry is the over-desire for something good. God created everything is good. He says that in Genesis chapter 1. Everything that's created is good. And God wants us to desire things, but when we over-desire them, we make a good thing an essential thing. It's really the motivation center for our lives. In idolatry, we make a person or a thing a functional savior in our life. We think that thing is going to save us. That thing or that idea is going to make me happy. And so we look for someone or someone else on which to place our security or our significance or our satisfaction. Desires are good, and God gives us desires, and he supplies our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so we shouldn't be afraid of God loving us and doing good things for us. But when we make those things or those people our focus instead of God, then we're committing idolatry in that way. So John repeats this theme of love and desire in these three verses because the battle is between correct and true love for God and misplaced or false love for anything else in addition to or in place of God. We have desires and we were created with the ability to love, but the issue is what we love and how much we love it. St. Augustine, who struggled with his own idols in the third century, he said this. He said, he or she loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, that's God, which she or he loves not for your sake. We love God too little if we love anything together with God that we don't love for God's sake. And John is pretty simple and straightforward in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what's the world? I had an email yesterday from somebody who was listening to the service. He said, I'm very interested in, in hearing how you define the world. Well, if you think about it, John wrote 1 John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John. So John wrote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so John there is talking about the world as the people in the world. All of us who are here, all of us who are listening, everyone who's ever existed, God loves the world, the people in the world. But that's not what he's saying about world in 1 John. He's talking more about what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, the culture of the system that we live in that tries to squeeze us into its mold, or the evil system of this world that's totally under the grip of the devil. Don't worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what John is here talking about as the world. And he says love for God and love for the world are incompatible. And we could see it very basically in the Garden of Eden. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. There's no sin there. Everything is good. There's just one thing that God has instructed them not to do. Don't eat of the fruit of this one particular tree. And he didn't necessarily say that that fruit was bad, but the command was, don't eat it. But when the serpent came and deceived Eve and Adam, who was standing right there, and he was silent, and when they thought, well, this thing is good, and God is denying us something, and if I have that thing, I will be more happier, I'll be more satisfied than what God is denying me to have. And so they ate it, and we saw the first sin, and the sin nature entered the world, and all of us have that sin nature because of their sin. And because of how Adam and Eve acted there, we see what sin is. 
So when we hear don't love the world, sometimes we have two opposite responses, two extreme responses. On one end, we might go over here, we might be an ascetic or a monk or a minimalist and say, well, I'm going to get rid of everything. So if I get rid of everything, I won't love the world because I won't have anything. But, but that doesn't solve the problem. You're still going to love things in the world even though you don't have things. And a minimalist can love God just as much as a maximist, if that's why you want to say it. So not having things isn't the answer, but it's also not the answer on the other extreme. God loves us, so do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. And yes, God has given us good things to enjoy, but then if we're enjoying those things instead of God, we're missing the point as well. So I tried to give us three different phrases or three different words or pairs of words to kind of help us figure out, am I, am I loving the world or am I loving God? And the first word is identify. Recognize, pin down, point out in your own life and your own, your own heart the sin and the sin beneath the sin, your motivation. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about this pretty clearly. He kind of explains what happens in our hearts. <clears throat> in Romans 1, verse 21, he's talking about sin, and he says in Romans 1, 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so that happens to us. Our, our thinking gets distorted. Some people say love is blind, and when you fall in love with another person, sometimes you don't see their weaknesses because you're so in love with that person. And I think that's what happens to us in the world. We, we love something so much, our, our thinking is distorted, we don't realize that we're not loving God and we're loving this thing or this person instead of or in place of God. So we have this distorted thinking, and then in verse 25, Paul says this, Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. We have this emotional bondage with the things of this world, and we just ha have to have them. We love food, and we have to have food. We love sex, and we have to have it, or whatever it is for you. And we have this what you call over-desire. And that's, that's the word that John is using in 1 John. It's a word with a prefix on it. He's using the word desire, but he's putting a prefix on it. It's over-desire. It's desiring so much, something so much that we're desiring it instead of God or in place of God. So in John, he goes through and he describes it, and he uses three phrases here in this passage. And really, as you look at them, the first phrase, the desires of the flesh, is the whole big picture. And then the next two are kind of the two aspects of that whole big picture. So he says, the desires of the flesh. Flesh is the outlook oriented toward self. It's me thinking about myself and my needs independent of God. It's kind of the main category of us establishing our own loves. And then he gives two different aspects of it. First of all, he talks about the desire of the eyes. And this is what we don't have or what we see that we want to have. And you can see it all over Scripture. You can see it in Adam and Eve desiring the fruit that they couldn't have. You can see Achan and his family being judged with death because he, he stole something from the booty of Babylon that he wasn't supposed to take, and he lied about it. You can see in David on the top of his palace when he should be out leading uh, the 
war and leading the battle with his army. He's instead on top of the palace wandering around and he looks over and he sees Bathsheba bathing at her house and he lusts after her. It's the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. It's, it's wanting something that we don't have and seeing it and sacrificing everything to have that thing. That's the desire of the eyes. The pride of possessions is the opposite of that. It's what we're proud of that we do have. It's the rich person being proud of their riches. It's the minimalist being proud of what they don't have. It's really any kind of belief that we're proud of, and I'll probably offend somebody, but it's, it's the masked person who dislikes and is angry at the anti-masker, and it's the anti-masker who is, dislikes and is mad at the person who, who wears a mask. It's, it's any kind of belief that we elevate from a good thing to an ultimate thing, and so it determines how we act towards other people. It's wanting to be right in whatever we view, not just, so not just in what we have, but what we believe and how we act as well. So we identify these things by asking ourselves questions. I ask myself all the time, why do I act like this? What do I want that I'm not getting that makes me act like this? And my wife helps me in this way because she often says to me in some things, what are you being so defensive about? And I say, yes, to myself, why am I being so defensive? What's making me, causing me to be defensive? What's the sin, the thing that I want that I'm not getting, and so I'm trying to defend myself? Why am I angry? Ask yourself that question. Why am I fearful? Why am I worried? Why am I despondent or depressed or or hating myself? Why am I? Ask yourself that question. When you're acting in a way that doesn't please God and you know it's wrong, ask not only that you're doing it, but why are you doing that? Look for that sin beneath the sin, the false savior that you've got. I love how Tim Keller says that. He says, we never break commandments three through 10 of the 10 commandments until we break commandment one and two. Commandment one is have no other gods before you. Commandment number two is have no idols. So we don't covet or lie or steal or commit adultery until we put another God before us, our God, and until we have an idol. Because we have another God before us, an idol, that distorts our thinking, causes this emotional bondage, and something else or someone else becomes a God to us. So identify those gods. See sin for what it is. See what you love instead of or in place of God. And next, examine and compare. And these words happen probably all at the same time, but this really helps us to think through it. See sin for what it is and God for who he is. Examine sin and compare it with God. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis that really describes this well. He says that there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for it, for the enjoyment of it, is a bad thing. Well, that's wrong. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink or sex or ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. 
The world's desires please us, otherwise we wouldn't want them. It's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We sin because we want something, and that sin and that want is something that looks good. And maybe for a moment it does satisfy us. But it's a, it's a letter, lesser satisfaction. And if we compare it with the satisfaction and joy and delight that we receive from God, that he loves us and desires to do us good with all his heart and all his soul, and we realize that and we compare that, we understand that these things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So John kind of says that in each of the three verses. He's, he helps us to examine by asking, where is it from in verse 15? Is it from God or is it from the world? Where does it lead in verse 16? Does it lead to a lust of the flesh or eyes or pride of life? Or does it lead me to love God more? Finally, verse 17, does it last? Is it passing away like this world? Or am I doing the will of God and so it lasts forever? So identify, examine, and compare, and then finally, repent and rejoice. We need to do both of those things. Not just repent, we do need to repent. We repent of our sins. We repent also of our heart motivation, our sin beneath our sin. But also we rejoice. We rejoice that we've laid aside lesser things and we found the greater joy in God. And God can give us that greater joy even in difficulty. Scripture says we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And they're not mutually exclusive. We can do those at the same time. Because God wants to give us joy in him. I've always been struck by the story of Eric Little, if you've ever watched Chariots of Fire. Eric Little was a, China, a missionary to China, but also a runner, Olympic athlete, and he competed and won uh, the 400 meters in the Olympics. And, and Little, I don't know if he said it exactly this way, but he's often quoted by saying, when I run, I feel his pleasure. God gives us pleasure in the things that he's called us to do. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So we can do good things and we can do them for his glory and we can receive joy from those things. Whatever it is, God calls us to trust and obey, to rejoice in him and obey him. And I want to, I want to close by looking at Psalm 73 really briefly, because Psalm 73, if you'll turn there with me, kind of gives a, a case study. Asaph here himself recognizes an idol that he has in his life, and his heart, and his mind, and he goes through the process of confessing that and understanding that and working through that. Let me just point out just a couple of verses in this passage of Psalm 73. Asaph begins, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's sinning by being jealous of people who are, are rich. And he's seeing them and he's looking at them and he's seeing, hey, they're wicked, but they have everything they want and everything they need. And he goes on and writes in verses 12 and 13, says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And he says about himself, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's looking at his own life and he's saying, I'm, I'm doing all these things for nothing. Look at what they have. 
Look at the ease they have, the riches they have. And I'm keeping myself innocent and I have nothing. And so I'm, I'm embittered, I'm angry, I'm jealous of them. Then he goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So Asaph is going into the temple, the literal temple, but he's going before God. We can do that wherever we're at. He's going before God and saying to God, hey, God, I don't understand this. Help me to understand. And God does as he lays it before him. God helps him to, to compare and helps him to see that, no, their end isn't good. Their end is bad, and your end will be joyful. Truly, you set them in a slippery place, verse 18. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. Verse 21, he says about himself, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Saying, God, I, I didn't understand you. I, w- I was so jealous. I was so much looking at them. I didn't get it that that was, was wrong. And he's, he's confessing. He's repenting here. But he also goes on and gives these great verses of rejoicing. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's times in this world when everything is stripped away from us. And, and, And we get nervous because Christ is all we have. But then I think at those points, Christ reveals to us that he's all we need. Whom have I in heaven but you? And nothing, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Yes, our flesh and our hearts will fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. I don't have a one thing, but my one thing would be those two verses, Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26. Take those home with you. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Think through Psalm 73 and ask God to show you where your heart is at and ask him to help you to see your greatest joy, your greatest love, your greatest desire is found in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your word. And we praise you for the truth of your word. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but you are the strength of our heart. You are our portion forever. We need nothing on this world besides you, and yet you bless us with good things. Help us to enjoy those good things and give you glory for them, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen.